We are in a series, as you know, if, if you've been here the last few weeks, um, called Tough Stuff. And um, what that means is that we are going through some of the, the more difficult uh, topics, um, the more difficult things to address, and uh, the, some of the more difficult things that, that uh, we often try to avoid when it comes to our walk with the Lord or uh, as we relate in the church or, or a number of a host of, of other things. Um, these are the things that we, we try not to address, and yet, um, oftentimes, they're, they're the things that are inevitable in life, and so we need to address them. Not only do we need to address them, not only does God want us to address them, uh, he wants to prepare us for them, um, because God understands uh, to a, a, a level that we probably don't realize um, the kind of brokenness that exists in this world. God is not blind to it. He's not surprised by it. And um, because he knows it to an intimate level, to the, to the degree that he's actually walked through it in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, we can know that he wants us as his people who've been bought with his precious blood, uh, that he wants us to be able to walk through it with confidence, knowing how to, to endure and, and actually how to help others do the same thing. Um, and so, if you remember last week, we, we were in week two last week, we're in week three this week. Last week, we talked a little bit more about the why of, of suffering um, and, and started to address some of those things through the life of a man named Job. And if you remember uh, anything about Job, he uh, was a, a very good man, had a very good life, had a lot of things going for him in terms of wealth, in terms of his family, in terms of, of health, and... Um, all of that gets taken away from him in an instant. And the rest of the book of Job is, is an examination of how Job is responding to that tragedy and what God is ultimately working out in his heart as he works through these things without an answer to the reason why, without a, a, an answer to that question. And so um, last week we talked more about the why. This week we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about the how. Uh, and specifically, how we actually start to join others in times of suffering. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I'm going to be uh, somewhat brief in the way that we describe some of these things. And I'm not going to answer every question uh, as it, in terms of how it relates to coming alongside of others and supporting them through times of suffering and grief. But we realize that that's something that we want our church to be really well equipped in. And so actually, we're going to be doing a workshop in October... I think on the 18th, but I could be wrong about that. That's, that's kind of the tentative date at this point. That, that's more focused on training in terms of how you actually walk with someone in various circumstances through their grief, through their loss, through their trial, through their suffering. So, because we, we want our church to be equipped. So we're, think of this today as kind of opening that conversation. That we're, It's going to lead to a bigger conversation in October. Um, and you might ask, like, okay, well, why are we talking about this now? Um, because I mentioned how last week we talked about some of the why of suffering, and now we're jumping right into, it seems, like how you help someone else. And we haven't really talked about how you help yourself, right? Um, it seems like we're skipping a step. And um, it, it, I realized that, and I actually struggled through uh, how to organize the series and, and which topics to handle first and, and in what order and all that. Um, and, and I came down to a couple reasons for why begin this conversation today. One of the reasons, and maybe the, the primary reason, is that this is the order in which the book of Job gives it to us. And, um, and so there's something to be said for actually allowing God to reveal things in the order in which he wants to reveal them to us. And I know oftentimes when it comes to times and seasons of struggle and suffering and, and all those things, we, we desire more than anything to skip the process, right? We, we want to skip the steps and reorder things in such a way that it makes sense to us so that we can kind of get ourselves out of the situation that we're in. And oftentimes, the steps that God takes us through when we're in those seasons seems very confusing, if not downright harsh to us, right? Uh, and yet God is working all those things out for our good. So, there's something to be said for the order in which God reveals it, and we're going to look at Job's friends today, which is going to tell us a little bit about either the how or how not to support others through suffering. Um, but the second reason is that 
Oftentimes, what you most need in times of suffering is also the very same thing that you need to give to others when it comes to suffering. So here's my my theory, and and I think this is backed up in terms of where we're going with this series. Let me ask this, and you can respond and we can dialogue about this. What do you think is the number one job description of someone who's looking to join someone else and support them in suffering? What's their number one job description, you think? Okay. Compassionate. To empathize with the other person. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah, not to come in with judgments or preconceived ideas. James. Yeah, to be present and available. Go ahead, Laura. Okay. <laughs> ah, yeah, someone of mercy. Yeah, exactly. So someone who knows what you're experiencing as you're experiencing it can walk through it with you, right? Um, so those are all great answers, and they actually support where I'm going with this. But if the reason why we're, we're to give empathy, the reason why we're to be present and not judgmental and, and supportive and caring and all these things is because the number one job description of someone who's providing support for someone else that's enduring suffering is to provide comfort. It's comfort. So that, that's what, it goes back to the thing that we need the most at the moment of suffering is also the greatest job description of someone who's looking to support someone else going through suffering, and that is to give comfort. Um, now, here's the thing about comfort. It, it helps, but it has limits, right? So think of the shock absorption system on your car. Um, when you go over the bumps in the road, it doesn't eliminate the bumps, but it helps you to go through the bumps on the road without kind of being shaken to pieces, right? Because it's a, it's a shock absorption system, and that's, that's essentially what comfort does. It doesn't eliminate what you're going through, but it helps you to respond maybe in a better way, in a smoother way, to the things that you're experiencing. That's what comfort does. So if you're experiencing suffering yourself, you need more than anything, at least initially, some sources of comfort. And if you're trying to help others, your number one job description is to be a source of comfort for those that are going through it. So here's the question. How do you do that? How do you provide comfort at the moment when someone's enduring something like that? It's a very important question because here's the thing about comfort. We can be very well-meaning in our efforts to give comfort and yet do horrendous damage. Can we not? I mean, we can have all the best intentions in the world thinking that we're providing comfort for those that we're trying to support, and yet the result of our efforts of comfort can actually leave someone in a worse state than when we, we, when we found them. That's the scary part about it, right? And it's also, hopefully, it leads us to actually want to know some of the ways that we can actually start to provide comfort for other people in a way that leads to thus helping instead of hurting those that we're trying to support. Um, so, we're going to look at, at a, a story as part of, of Job's story um, in terms of his friends. Now, how, how many of you have heard of Job's friends before? What's, do they have a good reputation or not so good reputation when it comes to comfort? Not so good, right? They're very well-meaning. I mean, apparently they travel from long distances to be able to support Job. But in the end, Job actually at one point in the book says, you are miserable comforters. You all, all of you, he says. Not a very good uh, label, right, when it, when it comes to them trying to support. Um, so Job has three friends. They're named uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they take turns uh, trying to comfort their friend Job. In fact, if you look at the book of Job, the, the, the vast portion of the book of Job is a dialogue. It's an interactive conversation between Job and his three friends. And they essentially take turns beating up on Job with their theories of why he's suffering. It's basically what happens. Um, But here's the thing. Both in their initial good example of how they join Job in his suffering, as well as in their not so good example of how they speak to Job in his suffering, we can actually learn quite a bit 
when it comes to wanting to give comfort to other people. You can learn a lot from them. So, so this is primarily what we're going to learn. Okay? We're going to move through three kind of phases of what it looks like to give comfort or support to people that are enduring suffering. Um, there's three ways that we can, that, and, and these are somewhat sequential, okay? So the first is that we can give comfort with our hands and our feet. Then we can give comfort with our ears and our mouth. And last, and most importantly, we can give comfort with our eyes. So hands and feet, ears and mouth, and ultimately with our eyes. So let's look at the first one, giving comfort with our hands and feet. Um, so even, jo- even though Job's friends get a very bad rap when it comes to uh, their efforts of comforting their friend Job, they actually start out doing pretty well. So here's what it says in Job 2. Uh, we're going to start in verse 11 through 13. It says this, When Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and do what? And comfort him. Good. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their, their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So, so let's dialogue about this. What do you see... Uh, the friends doing when it comes to support and giving comfort with their hands and their feet? What's that? <laughs> okay, they're putting dust on their heads, which at first seems like utter nonsense. Yep. Okay, good. Yeah, that's step number one, right? They get together and they say, hey, our friend is in a time of need. Let's set out and let's meet him where he is. Yeah. So they see his condition, right? And, uh, and that leads them to actually join Job in his condition. Good. If that thing gets close to me, just let me know so I can run. <laughs> Steve, you're my hero, man. Steve just provided me a whole lot of comfort with his hands right there. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Whoever inserted that, uh, that wasp, thank you for the visual illustration. Go ahead, Lorraine. Yeah, they weep with him. Another indication that they're actually joining Job in his condition, right? And that's what the whole dust on the head thing is, by the way. It's, it's an expression of saying, you've experienced death. So the whole idea when God says, from dust you came and dust you shall return, they, the, the friends, literally what they're doing by sprinkling dust on their head is they're saying, we're joining you in, in the mourning of your great loss because you've experienced death and we are essentially taking that death upon ourselves as your friends. We're bearing a burden that's too difficult for you to bear and we're putting ourselves underneath that burden with you in order to support you in it. It's literally what they're doing. What else do you see? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, they're communicating something incredibly important with their presence before they even say a thing, right? And that's so key. If only they would have kept their mouth shut. As we're going to see, things go from good to bad pretty quickly. What else do you see? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So because we, we feel like we should have an answer and we don't, which is a misconception right from the beginning. We're going to talk about that in a second. We will avoid the, maybe the most important thing, which is to actually give someone your presence, not your answers, right? And that's so key because what, what people need at the moment is actually someone to just sit in the dust with them a little bit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so there's a longevity to their, their uh, comfort. They sit with them day and night for a whole week. Here, here's the thing I, I, I was kind of thinking about this, is that oftentimes we think of giving comfort to someone purely in terms of them as being kind of a spiritual, emotional being, right? Um, and that leads us to actually want to answer questions that they're not asking and, and say things that are, are 
you know, we feel like they need to know. But here's the truth about the way that God designed us. We're not just a soul with a body. We're both. We are a body and a soul. We're both physical and non-physical in the way that God made us. And God designed us that way. We have an, an, an internal self, but we also have an external self. And that body, that external part of us, has certain needs. We're, we're more complex than just a simple answer. And because of that, when we're experiencing suffering, it takes both an emotional toll, a spiritual toll on the way that we respond to things, but it also, if you've ever been this, you, you know this right away, it takes a very physical toll on you. And so what you need in terms of comfort is not just a spiritual answer. Sometimes what you need most is a physical reality coming into your life. And so one of the best ways to provide comfort is actually by addressing the needs of the body first before you even get to anything spiritual. There's a great example of this actually in 1 Kings 19. The prophet Elijah is having like a total meltdown. So, so he's been, you know, following after God, living his life, and, and the response to his prophesying and his efforts to, to uh, speak to the people of Israel on behalf of God is that they've completely rejected him, completely rejected the Lord, and he is beyond despondent. He's actually suicidal. And so he's having this major meltdown. He thinks that everything that he's ever worked for is gone, and he goes into this incredibly deep depression. He's crying out for God, would you just come and end my life? And, and um, he, he's so weak, in fact, that he's kind of sleeping underneath a bush. And, and God comes to him. And I always thought this was amazing because God comes and he meets Elijah where he's at. And, and this is the very first thing that God says through an angel to Elijah. So this is 1 Kings 19. All at once an angel touched him and said this, Get up and eat. That's weird. Right? Don't, like, don't, like, hey, don't, don't be discouraged. Don't fear. God is with you. Let me reassure you. Let me tell you all the, like, you're not seeing the situation as you need to. There's something going on in your heart. No, he doesn't say anything. He says, get up and eat some food. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. Does he do something different this time? No, he touches him and he says, get up and eat. You're still not strong enough, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. So God had some things that he needed to communicate to Elijah, but where does God begin? He begins with his physical reality. He doesn't have the physical strength in order to hear the things that God has to say to him. And so what does he do? He addresses the physical part of who Elijah is way before he ever addresses anything of the spiritual. He cooks him a meal. See, he's saying you're not physically strong enough to hear what I have to tell you. So eat and sleep until you have the strength to press deeper. See, if we were just a spiritual being with no body, then the first thing that you do when you're helping someone is you try to lead them to the truth of their situation. You try to speak words of wisdom and advice and counsel or or listen to their heart's cry. But we're not just a spiritual being. We're a physical being as well, which means even though we might need some perspective, we also could need a nap and a hug and a hot meal. It sounds so simple, right? And yet it's profound. We might need those things. We might, we might need someone just simply to sit in the dirt with us for a while and cry as hard as we are. Um, one of the, I recalling a story as I was thinking through this, even this morning, and um, when, when Caleb was in uh, the hospital when he was born, many of you know he was uh, six weeks premature and he was in the hospital for uh, two weeks and um, for us, it was some of the longest two weeks of our, our life. And uh, one of the very first days, we had gone to go and, and uh, spend some time with Caleb there. And when you're, when you're in a, a point where your family's kind of in a, in a state of crisis, you're trying to manage through all those things, and you're not really thinking through taking care of your own physical reality. And so we had gotten back from uh, one of the visits when we were going to try to 
to uh, teach Caleb how to eat <laughs> um, so that he could get some strength and ultimately get out of the hospital. And, um, and I remember Kyle and Allie calling us up on the phone and saying, hey, can we come bring you a meal? And I thought, yeah, that sounds really good. They're like, okay, we're at, what was it, Salad Works. They're like, we can get uh, a, any kind of salad. What do, what do you want? And I remember just thinking, what, like, of all the things I could possibly eat right now, a Cobb salad is the thing I would choose above everything on earth. Like, I, for some reason, I was like, at that moment, like, I would take that over filet, like, at this moment in time. It just sounded like the best thing in the world. And so they, they just bought us lunch, and they came over, and they sat down, and they ate with us. And I re- that, was, that was one of the first days I remember, like, just being able to breathe and have a little bit of hope for what was about to come. I mean, I don't remember anything of the conversation that we had that day. I remember laughing a little bit and talking about some things other than what we were going through. But primarily what I remember most was two friends coming over and sitting with us and having a meal. That's what I remember. And it speaks so loudly. Because the truth is that your presence and your genuine caring is far more valuable than anything that you could possibly say in the moment. So even allowing for silence, even admitting in the moment that you don't even know what to say is okay. It beats platitudes every single time. And the other thing that we need to know, and and Job's friends give us a great visual of this, is that grief is usually a long journey. And so the best way to comfort others is to commit to walk with someone for the long haul. So commit yourself. It's the most important thing you could possibly do is to say, I'm not just in this for a day or, or a meal, I'm in this. I'm in this with you. As long as you're going through this, I'm in it with you. Let's walk this road together. So we're not just a soul, we're a body, and so our body needs to be addressed. But here's the other reality that we have to, we have to talk about, and I know it's not as prevalent in terms of the, the culture of the church, but it certainly is outside of, of the church. We're not just a body either. We're not just a body, and so our comfort can't only be physical. Because what we need isn't only a physical reality. In fact, if someone comes to you and says that your depression is just, is just, it's only a chemical imbalance, they're probably reducing the problem. If, if their solution for you is that you can take a pill and feel better all the time, you're not actually addressing the source of the depression itself. You need something more than that. Because again, we're complex. We're not just... We're not just a soul without a body, but we're not just a body without a soul either. So we can't have just a one-size-fits-all approach to getting us through these things. Because we're far more detailed than that. It's the way God designed us. So what that means is we have to go from comfort with our hands and feet to comfort with our ears and our mouths. In order to comfort others, there, there needs to be a combination of both the physical reality and the spiritual reality. And then once we get to the spiritual reality, we need to understand that it's a combination of both speaking and listening. And you realize I just emphasized the listening portion of that combination. Because the problem is oftentimes when when it does come to a conversation, when the, the conversation does get opened up, we find ourselves doing much more speaking than we do listening. And, and to be honest, that's Eliphaz's main problem, right out of the gate. Because here's, here's what's going on. Job suffers in chapters 1 and 2. He kind of goes through the bulk of his suffering. And then his friends meet him in chapter 2, and they sit with him for seven days. They don't say a word. But here's the thing. Job opens his mouth then in chapter 3. After seven days, he's like, all right, I need to get some things off my chest. I need to express what's actually going on inside my heart. And so he finally begins to open up about what's going on and how he's feeling about God and his situation. And Eliphaz gives him one chapter. (laughs) I mean, like 20 verses to get everything out. Okay, and then after that one chapter of Job pouring out his heart, he jumps all over him. In fact, this is the way that he begins. He says this in Job 4. This is the beginning of of Eliphaz's counsel to Job. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? In other words, are you done with your moaning and complaining, Job? Are you you finished yet? 
will you get mad at me if I interject some things because I'm seeing some things here and I, and I can't hold my tongue any longer. See, what you find out is that Eliphaz wasn't, he, he, he didn't give Job much space to speak, but he also, even when he was listening, wasn't really listening. Because he was just waiting for his turn to talk. Because here's the thing he, he goes on to say in, in chapter 5. He says, call if you will, but who will answer? To which of the holy ones will you turn, Job? You're, you're complaining, you're moaning, you're crying out to God, but he's not going to listen to you, so get over it. Don't bother calling out to God because he's not going to answer you. You think, what in the world would cause Eliphaz to come to that conclusion so quickly? He wasn't listening. In fact, what you find out is that Eliphaz had already come to a conclusion about the reason that Job was suffering before he ever opened his mouth. Eliphaz, all, he, just, he knew, apparently, all the reasons why Job was suffering. He had a preconceived conclusion before Job even uttered a word. And here's, here's the indication that you kind of know that Eliphaz came to a conclusion. He says this in, in Job 5, verses 2 to 7. Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. Who do you think he's talking about there? He's talking about Job. Because he says this, I myself have seen a fool taking root. A fool is somebody who's disobedient to God, by the way. But suddenly his house was cursed. So in other words, a fool may prosper for a little while, but ultimately God will get him in the end. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. Imagine saying that to someone who just lost all of his kids. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly up. So he's saying, Job, I know you, you prospered for a little while, but all these bad things are happening to you, and they don't just come by random chance and they don't just come because God uh, is vindictive against you. He's saying there's something deeper to the reason why you're suffering. Listen to the, some of the, and this is the, the statement that gives like the conclusion of, the, of Eliphaz's main theory. This is why he's talking in this language in Job 4.8. He says, consider now who being innocent ever perished. Were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. What is he saying to Job? It's your fault. What's that? Yeah, he's saying, you, it, this, this stuff just doesn't come out of nowhere. If you're... If you put corn in the ground, you get corn out of the ground. So apparently, if you're getting trouble out of this life, if you're experiencing suffering out of this life, you put something, you yourself put something in the ground in order to get out of the ground what you're now experiencing. Now listen, not only is that incredibly cold and harsh, what do we know about Job? Did Job sow trouble? No. And so what does it say about Eliphaz's conclusions? They're dead wrong. They're dead wrong. He's completely off base. But Eliphaz is too consumed with his preconceptions to notice. He didn't listen to Job long enough to find out what was actually going on. He came to assumptions about the suffering that Job was experiencing. Both the condition of Job's heart, but also the reasoning for the suffering itself. See, it's very rational, but it's dead wrong. Here's the thing. Eliphaz is making an assumption, but why is he making it? Because he's assuming that just because he's not in the situation he can see the situation with greater clarity than Job can. That's the main issue, right? He thinks that because he's outside of the situation, he, he can see with greater clarity. And it's really ironic because here's the thing. When Eliphaz 
gets to Job, when he sees him from a distance, what do they immediately do when they see Job suffering? They cry, right? They shed tears. Have you ever cried so hard that your vision becomes blurry? And you can't see even where you're going? Think of this metaphorically. Essentially, that's what Eliphaz is doing when he encounters Job. He, he, He weeps to such a degree that he's joining Job in the blurriness of his situation. He's joining him in the the condition of his suffering and saying, this doesn't make sense. This this isn't right. I can't see and my eyes are as blurry as you are, which is what's actually giving Job some of the initial comfort that he needs. But the moment that Job begins to speak and try to come to his own clarity about the situation by, by confessing what's in his own heart, Eliphaz wipes away the tears from his own eyes and goes, let me, see, let me, let me tell you what I'm seeing here. See, he, he thinks he sees with a greater clarity than he ever can. And so he starts giving answers to questions Job's not even asking. See, the, the truth is, for us, if we're trying to be people who are providing comfort for others, we will, we will be of no comfort with our mouths if we have not first been a comfort with our ears by actually listening to the person we want to help. It can't happen. If we don't listen to, to, to a long enough degree, we'll end up providing harm rather than help. So don't make assumptions. Listen. Don't make assumptions about the reason that the person is feeling what they're feeling Don't make assumptions about the nature of the suffering itself and why they're going through it. Because just like the person enduring the suffering, you don't know all the reasons why they're enduring it. You don't. Remember last week I said, it it may in fact be that God is withholding the why from us in order to do something in us. So what gives us the right in order to come in with the reasons why if God is withholding the reasons why? We can actually shortchange God's redemptive process in the life of somebody else by trying to rationalize everything that they're going through with answers to questions they're not asking. See, the greatest way that we can help is by first listening and then speaking. Because we don't know. It's a great example of this when Jesus are with his disciples in John 9. They're going through and they, they encounter a blind man. And the the the, uh, the disciples think that they see clearly what's going on. And so they, as they went along, he said to, they saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked Jesus this question. Rabbi, who sinned that this man, was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What are they doing? They've come to a snap judgment about the reasons why the man is experiencing the suffering is. They, they think he can see, they can see with clarity where this blind man cannot. And it's interesting because Jesus' response is essentially that you are just as blind as the person who's physically blind. Because he says that neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, God is doing something deeper in the heart and the life of this person that you have no idea because you're only looking at the surface. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a logical fallacy in the, in, in the way that they're even constructing the question, right? See, the other thing that that communicates is that Jesus is the only one who sees the man's condition for what it truly is. He's the only one who sees his heart. And just like the disciples, both Job and his friend Eliphaz are in the dark about the reasons why Job is suffering. So what that tells us is that we need to be humble when we're providing comfort. Not assuming that we know the reasons why. Not with an agenda to fix the person. Otherwise, we'll end up like Eliphaz, doing more harm than good. Now you might say, okay, well, that's true and all. But eventually you need to get to some kind of truth, right? Eventually you have to listen in order to respond and say something. And that is true. Eventually we do need to speak truth in their life. I I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. Uh, He says this, as a comforter, you need to always go into people's lives with a mixture of truth and tears. You need to come into a mixture with both of those things at play. Because if you take one away, you'll end up harming people rather than helping them. 
There's a, a great example of this actually in Jesus' life. Jesus, he, he shows up at the funeral of his friend named Lazarus, um, and, uh, and he encounters his two sisters, Mary and Martha. I don't know if you remember this story or not. Um, and they're both suffering incredibly. They're both going through this incredible experience where they've lost their, their loved one. And, um, and when Martha's, Martha says to Jesus, if you had only been here, then our brother would not have died. And do you remember what Jesus says in response to her? He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, what was the truth that Martha needed to hear? She didn't need to know the reasons why she was enduring the suffering. She needed to know who she could count on in the midst of it. I love, I lo- Jesus does, doesn't just like drop a truth bomb on her and then leave her in the state that she is. I love, he asks the question, do you believe this? Do you believe it? What do you believe right now about me? What are you believing about this situation? There's some of the best questions that you could possibly ask to someone who's going through a time of suffering. Is What are you believing right now in your heart? What's going on in your mind? What emotions are you facing? What are you struggling with? Who is, who is God to you? Where is He in the midst of all of this for you? Where do you believe He is? But it's interesting. Jesus doesn't just give out uh, truth answers to everyone at the funeral. <clears throat> and this is where the tears things come in. Because when Mary, Martha's sister, comes to Jesus... And she says the exact same thing. Very interesting. I mean, almost verbatim, word for word. And how does Jesus respond to her? What truth claim does he drop in her lap? Well, the answer is he doesn't. In fact, he melts into a puddle and breaks down into tears. So you'll never really comfort anyone without a mixture of those two things. Weeping with those who weep, expressing truth and love, particularly through asking questions that help people get to the heart and the root of why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the, uh, in the workshop that we do. So I'm going to keep moving. Last, ultimately, we need to comfort people with our eyes. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, it's interesting, at the beginning of Job's friend's comfort, they join Job in his suffering through their tears, Right? So it says this in Job 2. They saw him from a distance. They could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep aloud. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their head. And they sat in the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. So what are they doing? We've already talked about this a couple of times. But Job's friends are coming. And, and what they see is Job's condition. And they join him in his condition, right? That's what the whole dust thing is about. That's what them sitting in the dirt is about. That's what them, you know, weeping tears alongside Job is about. They're experiencing Job's condition, but here's where they fail. They never actually join him in his position. Here's what I mean by that. Because um, later on, when Aliphaz starts to give his counsel to Job, he starts to say some things which on the surface are are right on the money true. I mean, everything we're about to read is exactly the truth. But I want to see if you can pick out the reasons why it's actually not very helpful in terms of comfort for Job, okay? So this is what he says in Job 5, verses 9 through 11, and then at the end at 27. This is Eliphaz's counsel. But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before Him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. Miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain for the earth. He sends water on the countryside. The lowly He sets on high. And those who mourn are lifted to safety. Now let me ask, is all that true? Yeah, incredibly true. Are all those statements things that Job probably needs to hear? 
Probably, right? I mean, he needs to know some of these things. What's the issue then? Why might that not be the best counsel when it comes to to helping their friend Job in his time of suffering? Well, actually, if you look at verse 27, it says, it says, we have examined this and it is true. And he's right. Hear it and apply it to yourself. What's the issue with Eliphaz's counsel? Yeah, so he, he's waffling on the issue. And what does that tell you about Eliphaz's heart? He probably doesn't believe the counsel he's given. Right? Because why start out with going, hey, you can cry out if you want to, but nobody's listening. And then moving into actually talking about who God is and what he's like and how God can be a help in terms of times of trouble. It's actually revealing something about Eliphaz's own heart that he doesn't yet know in his experience the things that he's sharing with Job. But it says something else, too. Who is, who is Eliphaz talking to the whole time? He's, he's saying all these wonderful things about God. He's saying it to himself? I hope so. That would be really good, I think, because I think Eliphaz needs to hear some of his own counsel. Yeah. We're back to advice again, aren't we? He's telling Job, here's, all this, here's my prescription for how you can get yourself out of this mess. You see what the issue is with Eliphaz's counsel, with his position in terms of counseling his friend Job? You see why it's not a comfort to Job? It's because even though Eliphaz sees and, and even joins in the condition that Job is experiencing, he never actually puts himself in the position that Job is in and crying out to God on Job's behalf. See, I, I have a theory. I, I think the book of Job might be a lot shorter if Job 5 read something like this. Instead of being said about God, what if it was a prayer to God that Eliphaz was joining Job in the midst of his suffering and saying, I will, I, I will not just hear what you're experiencing, but I, I will see in the direction that you need to look. What if, he, what if he says something like this? Let's appeal to God together. Let's run to Him together. Let's lay our cause before Him together. God, You perform wonders that cannot be fathomed. You perform miracles that cannot be counted. You provide rain for the earth when we desperately need it. You send us water on the countryside. You set the low on high. And we are mourning, God. We are, we are in this together and we are experiencing this and it doesn't seem like we will ever get out of this, but You lift those who mourn to safety. We need to believe that, God. We've examined this, God, and we want You to apply it to us. Do you think that would change the way that Eliphaz's counsel was received by Job? See, the, the big difference between those two realities is one is saying from the perspective of someone who is not entering in to someone who's in the midst of it, here's how you get yourself out. And the other is saying, I don't know how we get out, but I will join you in it. And we together will look to the one the only one who can get us out. I was thinking of this situation um, when uh, I heard the story. The first time I was in Haiti, um, I was, uh, we went around to different communities, and one of the communities that we went to, and I've talked about this before, is the deaf community that's in Haiti. And uh, it's a group of people that kind of found one another in the midst of the rubble of the earthquake and ended up moving away from Port-au-Prince and are now in a place of safety. But I, I, we sat and listened to the story of a guy named um, Mackinson. Mackinson, thank you. Um, and, and his experience through the, the chaos of the, of the earthquake. And what he said was when, it, when the earthquake happened and, and everything was going on around him, because he was deaf, um, he was at an incredible disadvantage because um, 
aid was coming into the city from outside. I mean, the U.S. and other countries were sending incredible amounts of aid into the, the country of Haiti to provide food and water for people that they had no access to any of those things after the earthquake. But because he was deaf, he had no idea where to go. Because they would, they would announce where the, the food was going to be or where the water was going to be. And, and based on the announcement, those who could hear would run to the place where they could get the, the, the supplies that they needed. But because they were deaf, they had absolutely no access to be able to hear and run to the one that could help them and save them. So he said, one of the most important things for us when we were in that situation is to have people who could hear. Listen on our behalf and take, our, take us by the hand and walk us in the direction that we should go. Now apply that to the way that you think of comfort. One of the most essential, important things that you could possibly do for someone is that exact same thing. Because when you're in the midst of suffering, you can't hear, you can't see, you don't know where to go or where to turn or who to call on. And one of the most important things you could possibly receive, one of the most essential comforts that you could ever get is someone that says, I don't see the situation exactly as clear as as I could, but maybe I see the one who could provide the resources better than you can see him. And so let's, together, let's go by the hand and run to that resource. The only way I know how to do that is through prayer. Because prayer essentially is us saying we are in a place of need together. So what if you don't have someone to comfort you? What if you're in a spot and you go, no one's doing any of that for me. No one's being the hands and feet or, or giving me a listening ear. No one's being my eyes for me. What if I find myself in a situation where I'm, I don't have the resources to help? Here's the thing. One of the things that you need to understand is that our capacity as comforters when we're on a a human-to-human basis is limited. Remember I said at the very beginning, um, comfort doesn't eliminate the bumps in the road, it just helps you endure them. Well, when we're giving comfort to each other, we're limited in our ability to be that shock absorption system for one another. Uh, But there is one who is the greatest comforter there is. That's why we need eyes to see him and not just to see the person who's struggling. Because ultimately, we need to understand that though our ability to comfort is limited, his is unlimited. So that's why we point people in his direction. But that's, that also applies to, to a situation where we might not be experiencing comfort from another human being. Because even if that comfort is missing, the comfort of Jesus Christ can be with you every single moment. He doesn't just sit with you for seven days and seven nights. He sits with you for an eternity. He, he, he literally came and experiencing the, the suffering that we experience on a day-to-day level. So he knows it even more intimately than you do. And besides that, he knows the way out of it more clearly than you ever could. I love this picture that we get at the very end of the book, the very end of the story of God. In Revelation 21, it says this about Jesus. John is writing this, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So you know, the sea was the place of disaster and evil. And God is saying, literally, I'm wiping all of that uncertainty away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And then what does he do? The very first thing he does, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So I always thought of this passage, and I thought, um, yeah, Jesus is the one who wipes away our tears, and ultimately he's going to do that in eternity, and and he's going to wipe away every evidence of of the things that we experience in this life. And all that is true. Um, But I think it's also communicating something to us today about the way that Jesus wipes away our tears. Because if, if you believe, remember Jesus said, do you believe this? I'm the resurrection and the life. If we believe this about Jesus one day, that he has the authority to wipe away every tear on that day, well, then that should, by its very nature, lead us to believe that he can be with us in our tears today because he experienced them himself. So if you want comfort, he, he's the one that can provide it in greater detail and greater measure than we ever could. I, was, I, was, I did a search on, um, on the term, my only comfort. Because I wanted to see kind of like what was out there. And, and um, here, this was the first thing, that, or one of the first things that, that came up was actually a, a statement in something called the Heidelberg Catechism. I know those are two really big words. Heidelberg is just a city in Germany and catechism is just a, a, a call-and-response statement-type thing that kind of taught people uh, the basic truths of our faith and, and what it meant to, to, to be a believer in Jesus. And this is one of the, the questions and statements of, of this catechism. It says, what is my only comfort in life and death? That's the question, right? Where, where does my comfort come from? To whom shall I turn? What could possibly help me to endure what I'm enduring? And this is the answer that it gives. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and therefore, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him.